Okay. Uh, I'm recording. I started before you. Um, it's I, okay. I win. I'm, I'm a pro uh, at it, lining these things up. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Um, I'm doing. I do. You know what I started doing? I started doing Wordle. Right? Do you remember Wordle? Oh yeah. I. Uh, I mean, I, if I had friends that played it on a regular basis, I would happily, uh, you know, have that five second conversation with you every day. What did you get it in? Did you get it in two or three, four? <laughs> I, I, that is, that is exactly it, right? So I'm doing Wordle every day and, and my wife is doing it. So my, my goal is to, to be, to be better than her, right? Yep. So I'm not, and I'm doing, I'm doing this live on stream as well, right? But you ah. have to be up very early or very late if you're going to catch me doing that because of a time difference, because it usually happens at the very beginning of my stream. Some will redeem play Wordle and I look at this thing and I'm like, yeah. Um, and it's always it's like you're, 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 you're talking about the official me, right? Wordle, right? You're not are you, or are you using a third party Wordle? Because there are so many Wordle clones out there. Um, I don't know if you're if you're hooked on one of the the clones or if it's the official one. I, I well, it's the rules of the official one, I think. Mm-hmm. But I, I see. I don't want to say it out loud because I don't want to. I don't want to do free marketing for sure, some, sure. some large American newspaper here. But I, I kind of. Uh, yeah, it, it's official rules, right? It, it's, uh, I think, six guesses, five letters, and it's only like, it's only one word. I know this Quirtle, which gives you four words, this Worldle, which gives you like a world, uh, it's a, a country outline, and there's actor, like, there's Nerdle as well. Have you seen Nerdle? No. So nerd, oh my God, you, you're going to have to find a lot of links for the show notes now. Let me just list 40 more obscure ones. To Thankfully, I only no. add links if they're like, you know, mentioned and like, not just in passing. Now you've kind of, we've had the topic though. Now, nerd, yeah. I'm going to have to look it up. I'm going to have to put Nerdle in the show notes, but yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, but Nerdle, Nerdle is just math, right? So you, you have, um, you have oh, it's math symbols. Like, so you, you basically have zero to nine, uh, plus minus division, multiplication, and an equal sign. And you oh. have a set number of boxes and you're supposed to come up with a thing, right? I, 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 I didn't really get into that one, right? It's not really my cup of tea, but it's just one of those permutations, right? Now, I remember when Wordle was new, everyone did like a Wordle clone, right? So when you oh, asked, yeah. when you said, is it official one? I, I have seen so many clones. I didn't even know what the official one is do you know who has the official one is that new york thing? times to to avoid uh, uh you know to, to to not to avoid naming them again uh the the person who invented wordle sold it to new york times originally so the official one is the the new york times version i believe that his website still or th- sorry their website i don't really know uh, pronouns for the person um uh, their website still uh is uh, like the official version, but I think it's migrated to the New York Times domain or something like that. But um, so yeah, I don't know if you're playing that version or not. Um, but if we do that play, is the one. That is we the do one, need yeah. to make sure we're on the same version. When my uh, parents came to visit me uh, for last Thanksgiving, um, the my mom was playing Wordle, and I downloaded and I, I so I started playing too. And for the first day, <laughs> we didn't realize we were using different words because uh, we didn't actually say what the word was. We just said like what our guesses were, and it took us the second day to realize that our guesses are really strange for what the word was uh to realize that we weren't playing the same version so <laughs> oh yes okay now that makes sense well okay it looks it looks like we're playing the same one obviously our time difference is gonna make it so that we might have uh different words though right now uh, but yeah, yeah maybe. so, so yeah. Um, I, but i guess not because like the the it, it, may, be, it may mean that if i though, skip right? it uh, if like if i if i wait to too late in the day for me I may end up missing one of the ones that you did, sort of thing. I think there's um, a there's a if, but if you do if you do when you wake up, you should you, or, yeah, or roughly exactly. around that time, you should be hitting on the same one. Yeah. Um, I, I tend to I tend to to see what so I as I do this I do this on stream and um, uh, I have to hide the chat. Right, they are very very helpful, but you don't really want helpful people no. when you're doing a puzzle game, right? Uh, but they come up with great suggestions for. Uh, the next word, right? So I, uh, my, my wife has a bit of a strategy. You see, she's come up with the various clever words to sort of get through some of the rougher uh, guesses, right? Um, so, so she has a strategy. I have a, uh, have a chat with a very <laughs> lewd imagination. So my words <laughs> all over the place tomorrow is latex um but uh, yeah so i kind of get my my first word suggestion from chat we had linux the other day as well nice. um and yeah it's a good use of the of, of the letter x in there as well right so so yeah yeah no i've I, I like I heard it. of I an interesting like- first guest that i hadn't heard of recently um adieu like i bid you adieu 
um, there's so many vowels in that particular five letter word that uh, it's actually a pretty decent one if you like the strategy of trying to figure out what vowels a word has to start with. Oh, that is pretty. That is pretty good. Right. So then um, the, the follow up question the, though about the because originally we got on this. I'm not sure where we originally got on this topic, but uh, you, you had asked me if I was playing Wordle, and I asked you know if this official version or not. The other question now that we know that we're on the same version in theory um, is, do you play hard mode or not? Is there a hard mode? Yeah, if you go up to the settings widget, there is a setting that basically makes it so that once you know that a letter is present, it must be in your future guesses. And once you know that a letter is in a specific position, your future guesses must keep that letter in that position. Um, so basically, it kind of it makes it harder to figure out follow up guesses. Sometimes, sometimes it doesn't really impact your play at all. Um, but in some other cases, it can really make it a little bit more challenging to figure out good guesses to help whittle down the remaining characters. And in some situations you get it four out of five, right. And you know, and you're trying to figure out what the last letter is and there's like four or five letters that fit. And it's just like pure guesswork at that point. Um, so yeah, it's, it can, it can be very hard if you work yourself into one of those situations. I might try. I might try. Do you play hard mode? Is that? A, well, I haven't been that? playing since uh, I don't know the start of the year. Uh, mostly because I just didn't have someone that I would chat with it on a regular basis. Um, I uh, you know don't. I, it's, I don't chat with my mom over text every single day as uh, some people may be horrified by that. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of lost <laughs> when she wasn't here in person. Uh, the the fun of hop, popping open Wordle um, to try to you know best her uh kind of kind of faded so so i haven't been playing recently but yes i'm happy to play on hard mode uh and you know but i'm happy just to agree on whatever we're playing and be part of the uh the daily exchange so to speak yeah by all means so so like if if we if we um so what i'll do you know what they should do right they should have um a hash or something for the word so you know that you're playing on the same one as the other person right you can see like I the word and I know that you when know. you copy and paste the result, it does something cool to like just show boxes or whatever. Um to show like so you can share your guesses with other people um without like revealing what they actually were. So they can see kind of the the green and yellow patterns that progress through your guesses. Um and I'm not oh, sure if really? when you copy and paste that, if it includes the date. It might. We'll have to we'll have to try that out. But either we'll way, we'll have to we'll, we'll have to look into this, right? We'll yeah. look into it. We'll do we'll do a little bit of wordle on 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 so I'm happy I'll do it in the morning on, on stream and then I'll I'll share without spoiling on, on our Discord then. Yeah. Um, to see how things are going, right? Um yeah, because it would be cool. It'd be fun if if uh, if we if we share these things, right? And yeah. have a look at it, right? So that'd be very cool. Very cool. Uh you know what? This is supposed to be a podcast about programming. Have you ever done really? a little clone? Uh no, I haven't. <laughs> is that what you're doing now? <laughs> should should we? Is that, is, that what, is that what our next distraction is? <laughs> Sorry, I don't know. Uh, I interrupted you there. No, I was, uh, what, what I have it's been working right. on was uh, was that other distraction that I had been talking about before. Uh, you know, I was inventing another programming language. Uh, I mentioned that it's kind of a, a hobby of mine to do this periodically, and this probably would not be the last one. Um, that being said, I actually kind of like been thinking a lot more about what the 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 like high level language would actually be like um and i've been um uh reading up and and kind of daydreaming i guess more about uh these things called type and effect systems um and, and it may be a little too um uh hard to put into like concrete terms to explain what it is because I spent several hours trying to understand what it was the other day, uh, and and uh, it took me a long time. and And I have a, a very naive um, uh, view on what it actually is. To me, it's it's a uh, it's akin to dependency injection in in a in in a way, but it's like provided by features of the language of a sort. Um, and using that type and effect system mixed with a trait system, um, to me, is a really interesting prospect. Um, and so, uh, I, I'm really excited about the ideas that I have for this language, but I've also put it aside for now. Um, so the, the virtual machine itself is really cool and I do want to clean it up and get it kind of just uploaded so that it's in a state where I come back to it in the future. I'm not completely lost as to what's going on. Um, so I kind of still have some cleanup that, so it's not fully put aside, but the, the idea of creating that language on top of it, I've kind of tabled a little bit because there's just a lot of ideation that I'm trying to finish up on it um, to figure out exactly what it is. I, I'm hoping that this new idea might 
become what I call the GUI language, so the, the thing that's for for the the graphical user interface library I've been building to to provide a uh, a hot reloadable version of of how to represent your user user interface code and some very basic application logic and stuff. Um, but at the same time, like the the vision of what I have for this language feels like it could be really fun just to write all sorts of stuff in it, and the idea that it can meld very uh, cleanly just like uh you know there's some really great crates out there to make it so you can write native uh native rust modules in python and other languages like that so it's like really easy to do that's the same sort of thing that i want here that it's like just incredibly easy to take these really awesome crates we have in the rust ecosystem and expose it to this language right like that should be a give it a leg up uh, on other you know uh dynamic languages out there because like we have a really robust ecosystem of like in my opinion top-notch implementations of various ways of solving different problems like you know, the HTTP client aims to be the best HTTP client, right? Like that we have those types of uh, mentalities when building crates in the Rust ecosystem that we want it to be the best of the best and we want it to be zero cost abstractions if we can, right? And we have all these things that make Rust really attractive and wrapping up those really nice, well-defined crates uh, in an, a high level language seems like it could be a really big win. So, uh, so yeah, that's kind of one of the things I've been working on. Um, have you, have you started, um, sketching? So you, you say language, right? And mm-hmm. when people, when people hear our oh, new programming language, the first thing they think, I don't know if this is true, but I think that the first thing a lot of people think about is like, what does the syntax look like? Have you started yeah. looking at syntax yet? Yeah. Um, I've been trying to figure out how to minimize the number of keywords. I actually found an interesting, uh, post on, uh, I think a hacker news this morning. Um, that uh, someone posted a, a language they've been working on that their shtick, I guess, is that everything's a function and there are no keywords. And I think that having no keywords is a little bit of a mistake because then everything's <laughs> just uh, syntax. Um, that being so said, every ident is a is a name of a function. Or, yeah. Yeah, and that's honestly close to where I was going with some of uh, my language design um, because it definitely is more of a functional design. Um, but uh, yeah, it's I, I don't know. Um, I I I want to minimize the number of of um, keywords because like when I write a compiler in Rust, I want to sometimes name a local variable fn. Like I just do because it's a function, but instead I have to call it func. But at that point, if I'm calling it func, why don't I just spell out function, right? Uh, like there, there's like these little tiny keywords sometimes that really conflict with local variable names sometimes. Um, and one of those for me is func fn, like I've been saying. But um, so- I think that's probably indicative of, of you making a programming language though totally right so that, I mean, i'm like i'm thinking the only time i want to type the word type is when i'm making a language right <laughs> no that's actually so not true i think that kind and type are slightly different and i wouldn't want to try to pull up like i wouldn't want to try to like debate what they were without pulling up a dictionary but i feel like sometimes kinds make sense and sometimes type makes sense and I kind of dislike having to choose between one of the two. Uh, the other one is async as a keyword, like the, uh, the inability to have a module named async to put all your async related functionality in. It's a little annoying. So like, you know, that, that's where I, I aim to try to minimize the number of, um, of keywords, but more specifically, uh, because these are, are, are variable names usually that conflict, um, more, more than function names. Usually uh, that's my personal feeling of where these keyword things usually come into play. Um, because of that, I, I kind of feel like there should be a way to, uh, uh, have more of like keywords that are verbs because those are less likely to conflict. If we think about what the ones I'm talking about, function and type or FN and type, those are, are, are nouns. They're not verbs, right? So what if, you know, the main keyword is declare or something like that, where it's an actual verb, you know, how often can you think of actually having a uh, variable name named declare somewhere? Um, right. Like that's, that feels like it kind of gets rid of that a little bit more cleanly. That well, being you, said, you could, you could, um, um, yeah, because I, I, I'm guessing like you want to have reserved keywords, but you could also have reserved keywords in certain contexts, right? But exactly. I'm guessing you kind of thought of that. Maybe. No, then that's exactly what my thought is, is that if you have a declare as your keyword or something like that, then that can be the, the, the launching off point of, uh, of context specific syntax. So the next word after declare 
might have to be function or uh, variable or I don't know, like all the different things you type. Um, and so that's where those uh, those slightly restricted keywords that you wouldn't, you know, you don't want to have conflicting can be used. They're not actually keywords from the compiler's perspective. They're still just identifiers. It's just that because there was the keyword declare that came before this random identifier, it now interprets it as an actual compiler directive. Uh, it, it treats it as if it was a keyword at, th at that point, I guess. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what I was thinking. I think so. So given that this is a new language, you have to, on the about page, you have to mention that it's memory safe, blazing <laughs> fast, has zero cost abstractions. Because this is what I see in all programming, like all new programming areas that comes, that I come across, right? It's like, oh, it's blazingly fast or blazing fast. I don't know, you know, I don't even know. But and then like zero cost abstractions and 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 all these things is that all they all have them, right? But I'm I'm yeah. um I'm in, I'm intrigued though, right? I'm intrigued. I, I don't love uh, new programming languages, right? From the perspective, right? From the perspective of I have to learn them, right? Yeah. And so I so I think I think about the the language that I've created, the, the 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 markup language I've created for mine, I think, okay, look, some poor person out there is going to have to learn this if they're going to build with it. So I picked a syntax that is very close to YAML, that is very, very close. And I, and I know that YAML ain't a markup language, right? But <laughs> still, so far, so good. Um, I might have to change it. Right? We'll see. But um, My only familiar. gripe with YAML, like, I, so I like the a very minimalistic set of what YAML supports. But if he went and actually looked at the YAML spec, it is huge and it supports all sorts of random stuff that you wouldn't even think about. And so like, I like the minimal syntax. Um, and, and at one point, uh, like many, many years ago, internally at the company that I, I ran before, uh, I made a, uh, a minimal uh, YAML like implementation that was just the the basics that made it compatible with JSON, um, and that was our config file format that we supported in our our hybrid code bases that supported both kind of Ruby and um, C sharp from the same configuration files um, because there wasn't a at the time I didn't like any of the YAML libraries that existed for C sharp um, that that obviously almost certainly has changed by now because um, that was a, a much different time back then so. Isn't the spec a result of the, the the very many ways you can interpret an ident or a string, right? So, so I, there's a, there's famously the case where they listed country codes and and um, I think it was Norway, which is no, turned into false because <laughs> no was false. Yeah, there there are I some mean, really weird edge cases like that that just make it you know. It'd be easier to standardize. But that's a result on. of the complexity, right? Yes, exactly. Because it's, so, so yeah, and and so I I have obviously right. First of all, there isn't really a specification to to my language. It has sort of grown organically, sure. but it, again, it's very very simple. It is basically just indentations, strings, and idents, and that's pretty much that. That's all, all you're gonna get, right? So. Um, so it's very, very basic. Uh, it, it depends. Like, I want to add a few more features, which may or may not change how the language works. I had at one point the ability to declare something as an animation. So you could you have a property, and then you can also you could wrap the property in an animation uh, context, which meant that it would animate. The, it would sort of tween the. The, the animation based on some kind of easing function that was part of it, right? It was all very clever and it was all terrible in the end because the, the syntax was unmanageable and, and quite uh, disastrous, right? Um, but uh, yeah, I want to, I want to kind of, I want to keep it simple. Like you say, it a simple language is is with few keywords. It's easy to learn. It's easy to wrap your head around and and all that. But it's, saying yeah. saying that, um, isn't a language like C? Doesn't that have like thirty-two instructions or, or, or whatever? Right? Oh, I have like the, no idea. Um, max the keywords, right? Yeah, well, well, I might just be making this up. If you're listening <laughs> to this thing, you should probably go find out if anything I say is true, right? Um, no, I, I, I mean, key, keywords don't necessarily belie the uh, complexity of the language. Um, no, and, right. and, and, and like. No. What I would say is that one of the other goals that I would have of such a language is that it should be really minimal and, and small. Like, and that's uh, why I mentioned that other language that everything's a function and there's no keywords is like there's a purity to something that's that simple that 
Um, they've picked their abstractions that their language supports and they fully embraced them to, 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 to a fault. You know, who knows if there actually is a fault in this particular mutation, right? But, but they've, they've, they've stuck to their story of what they're doing and made it so that, you know, it is very, uh, elegant in terms of just how simple and straightforward the, all the concepts fit together. And if you think about how Rust type and trait system works and lifetimes, I don't think that anyone could ever say that it's basic or minimal or, um, or simple. Um, and I've, I don't know if I've mentioned it on the podcast, but I, I, I mean, I like working on compilers and stuff, but I'm scared to try to dive into the Rust compiler because of how big and massive and complicated these things are. We have like, you know, Polonius, the, the, the new borrow checker that's, you know, uh, somewhere that, you know, is being worked on. And if you go and look at some of these things, they're just massively complicated because of how, I mean, Rust solves some really interesting problems. Um, but like, I don't want to have to have such a big language myself because that means there's a lot more to implement. That being said, I think that Rust made a lot of really nice design decisions. So I'm definitely being inspired by some of them when I, when I go and, you know, work on this language. But yeah, one of the goals is definitely to try to make it so that, uh, the compiler for it is easy to understand and it's really straightforward. Um, you know, and I don't, I don't know how easy that's going to be to implement. That's one of the reasons why I decided that it's uh, going to be put on the, or that is on the back burner uh, already. Um, but like I said, I still have some cleanup that I'm going to do in the next few weeks here um, before I fully put it there. So, sorry, so one of the fundamental things about a language uh, that is, if you're making a mainstream language today is to have a bunch of, um, extras around that, like a packet manager and mm -hmm. dependency management and all these things. Is that on the menu or is this going to be focused predominantly to, to be the, the language of the user interface or, or like, what do you, well, what, even what if it is the there? language of the user interface, wouldn't you want to potentially be able to reuse code? Code reuse seems like it could lead to bugs. Okay, <laughs> I, have, I have reused a lot of my code, and it's all terrible. Now, yeah, but it, it, no, absolutely. I mean, like, but but okay, but so this is this is I'm talking about mainstream programming languages, right? So uh -huh. if your goal is to make a mainstream programming language, then the bar is pretty high today. I, I'm talking about this more, maybe more from my thoughts and perspective, right? I haven't gone as far as you have gone clearly, since I haven't designed the language, right? And um, so um. So, so what, what I'm thinking, like, if you if you're gonna, because I, I talked about this a, a while ago as well. If you're making a language today, you have to offer a lot of these things. People expect them to be there. They, they it's no longer acceptable to say if you want networking, then you have to copy this file and paste it into your project uh, directory, and then include it with some kind of include something rather, right? Like there's going to be something. Is that something you thought about? Is this even a part of, of, of your line of thinking? Or Yes, or it is. Of, so it I, is. I, I've, I want this thing to, if it, so I think there's, uh, I, I should caveat that I don't know that what I'm designing is actually good. Like, I just don't know. I think it sounds cool and interesting. And until I actually go and try to use it, I, I won't know if it's actually good or not. It sounds really fun and interesting to me. Um, so I, I'm excited by that prospect, which is why I know that I'm not fully going to put it aside. I just have other things that I want to work on because, hey, we're supposed to be working on a game soon at some point here. Um, so I, I do see a standalone version. Like one of the one of the key decisions was commenting style. And you might be asking, why is that a key decision? Well, on Why on is Linux, that a key decision? <laughs> on Linux systems, you can do chmod plus x on on a, on, on a text file, and if you have a pound bang at the top of your file, it'll try to uh, run your script using whatever's after that as the executable. So that's the way that you often will have like an executable Python file that uses your system Python executable, but the script is just a plain text file that at the top has a specially commented pound bang, um, you know, uh, header, so to speak. But Rust doesn't support comments that are started with the pound sign. So how does that tie in with shell invocation if you were to try to actually make a .rs file executable? Well, you don't really, right? And that's not really what people expect out of a Rust thing. And I know on a previous episode, we talked about Rust script, which is a, a relink again as, a, as you know, the, the idea of being able to embed a cargo toml inside of your um, inside of your Rust source so you can just run it directly without having to 
uh, first build it. Um, and I, th- I think that that's a very uh, useful thing of a scripting-like language. And that's essentially what my goal of this thing that I'm building is, is to be a lighter weight, uh, safe language, because <laughs> um, we love safety with, with Rust, um, that interoperates <laughs> really smoothly with Rust. Um, but the other interesting aspect that I, uh, I really am trying to embrace is the, the multi-processing stuff. And, um, that doesn't really make that big of a difference for a GUI language. I mean, in theory, like, you know, most of the stuff that I'm thinking about trying to implement in a GUI language, uh, is mostly about just tying things together, assignments essentially, right? And, you know, setting up data structures and, you know, that sort of kind of very basic stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, um, I could see myself with this type of system, if it's actually fun to work in, wanting to build larger things in it. And at that point, yeah, like why wouldn't I want to be able to have a package that contained a widget or something like that, right? And so, yeah, even inside of the GUI ecosystem, I could see wanting to support some type of package management. And I'm hesitating to say what all that could actually be because I understand the desire to have things like vendored and stuff like that. And now we're starting to get into all sorts of fun, you know, complications with package management that, you know, I don't necessarily want to solve on day one. Uh, so have I thought about it? Absolutely. Do I think that if this succeeds, there will be a package manager? manager? Absolutely. Do I think I'll actually get there? I have no idea. Um, the reality is, is that when I start actually trying to write the, like write code in this language using it, I might realize that it's missing things that I just don't, you know, I, I, I would need to add more complexity for, or, you know, whatever. And until I, until I get there, I just, I just won't know. So, uh, thankfully I have fun exploring this problem set. So it'll be fun. That is getting very there. important. Yeah. And that's why, so, so you touched a little bit on, 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 on game development as well. Conversely mm-hmm. earlier, uh, this, this sort of, this jams a little bit with, with one, what I was thinking when you said, I don't know when it comes to the future of your language, right? Because if, if you're making a game, you can sort of quickly sketch out the game. If you're making your mainstream game, you can sketch out the game loop. Is it fun? Yeah, all right, let's keep going. Is it boring? Scrap it, let's do something else, right? Mm-hmm. But with the project that you're doing and the project that I'm doing, these are large projects. They, they don't take... They, like, you couldn't do this in the span of a game jam, right? You can't, like, ludum dare, all right, let's build a programming language. It's not going to happen, right? So, like, at what point do you kind of go, um, you know what, this isn't, this this wasn't pleasant to use. I, I Like, how much time have I sunk into this? <laughs> and should I keep going even though it's not good? Like, are you, are you at all worried about that? Uh, a little bit, which is one of the reasons why I put it aside. I mean, the reality is, is that um, <laughs> every time that we get ready for a podcast, I'm like, oh, crud, have I made progress on GUI or Bonsai to the point that they're closer to being able to build a game with? <laughs> and, you know, I mean, literally, was it just yesterday we were chatting and I'm like, so, uh, you know, are, do we really have to build GUI? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that led to a fun little, you know, fun little thing where you were talking about, you know, the optimizations you were trying to make on yours to to make it nice and fast to lay out. I don't remember. For some reason, we came up with the idea of a thousand widgets at the time. Um, but I don't know if that was the exact number you were testing. But uh, oh, it was one thousand one hundred seventeen. But yeah, yeah. So I, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't reproduce the exact situation you were either. Um, but you know, you had very like specific numbers you you because you were actually measuring them. I was just curious if I put a thousand buttons uh, using one of my examples of GUI on the screen, what would happen? You know. So I, I threw that together uh, on a live screen share session with you, and we were goofing around with it, and we we did some live optimization there and this all stemmed from the do we really have to do GUI <laughs> and it turns out <laughs> I uh, you know after making it so that it doesn't recalculate layouts for stuff that are obviously off screen at the point that it's calculating those things uh, it was pretty darn fast I didn't go as far as hooking in an actual benchmarking to know how long the layout phase took versus the redraw phase but at least when run and release build, not debug build, uh, you can you can mouse <laughs> over the the buttons and not really notice any lag of when the hover effects happened and stuff. So uh, so it felt usably quick enough. And for something that I haven't spent much time optimizing, other than the I don't know how long did we spend that day? 10, 15 minutes looking at that. It wasn't very long. Mm. Um, other than those little tiny bits of time that I've spent looking at it here and there, um, I really haven't spent any time optimizing it. So. 
Uh, that to me makes me feel good about the prospects of how fast this could be, even with realistic complex UIs. Um, but obviously, again, until we get there, <laughs> who knows? So I don't know if you wanted to talk about some of the stuff you've been working on with your optimization or not, though. Uh, I, I do your question is if anyone wants to listen to that, but <laughs> I, uh, I made, I made an executive decision and I decided that I'm going to try. Uh, I'm gonna try to have a strongly typed state. I don't know yet if this is gonna work or not, but there was something quite nice about declaring a view and attaching a state to that. So when you're operating on the state and you're making changes to it, so you're, you're writing your states as um, using the types that you want. You can have strings and ints and, and you know composite types. You can have structs and enums and all that. And these things will then translate into cow strings. In, for the front end. And, and so that concept works quite well. But when it comes to scoping values, this is what, this is where my current strife is. This is my current battle is scoping values. And when it comes to constructing a widget from a slice of time, right? As in, you are in the middle of iterating over a bunch of values in a collection, which is a, which is an element in another collection, which is an element in another collection. You have like nested collections and you, so you have to scope these values. So when you're, when you're in your text widget or you're, you're in your border widget and you want to grab the padding attribute, right? If the padding attribute isn't, um, written as a static value in the template, we have to read this value from Either the scope, if it's not in the scope, we have to get it from the state, but the scope is not statically typed, right? So this is my this is my current like this is my current battle. But I feel like um, and I've been, I've been here before. I've been here before so many times. I feel like, oh my God, we're almost there. I just I just need this thing to work. And then, then I can reassemble all my code again and and and, and the, the entire crate, the workspace, and see something on screen. And, and sort of, you know, sigh of relief. It's all there. It's kind of working and, and I can look at this thing, right? Um, and so, so that's kind of where I am again in this, in this programmer's denial of where it's like, oh, yeah, we're almost done. Like there's the perpetual <laughs> state of a program and like 10 years down the line, wake sure. up in the morning and like, oh, you know, I'm almost done. Right? Nothing, yeah. I do, I do want to, I do want to start the game sometime before 10 years from now, but I'm actually kind of okay with the fact that you're continuing to take a while because <laughs> I'm like trying to line up GUI to the point that we might actually use it. Although, you know, as I, as people heard, I, I was legit just asking you, do we really want to do this? The other day, you know, like it's, if uh, you are listening to this, you have just observed the, this very programmer's delusion explained by me and observed in Acton, exactly thinking that he's going to finish his library before mine. Yeah, I wasn't. A, well, I'm not, not trying to say I'm going to finish. <laughs> Obviously, trying to make a full GUI uh, just is, in course, theory, a lot yes. more than a TUI. Um, you know, different problem sets, obviously. But um, you know, I, there's no way I could finish. Uh, no, that, that's where the the leading questions on the previous podcasts of like, what all functionality do we really need in our user interface? The, the, that's the motivation of where the questions came from. Is like me trying to figure out what the mental list of features that GUI absolutely needs for it to not be a roadblock as we go to implement our game um you know and that's yeah, kind of that's, that's kind of what i've been thinking enough. about but legit like go ahead what i wanted to so, so on that like so we you you started this you, you mentioned a bit like how we how we did a bit of uh, sort of uh, live testing and benchmarking and one of the things that i stuck into my uh, runtime was um to to measure various parts of the application how long did it take to to for this frame to do the layout the paint the positioning and and the actual drawing are you are you planning on putting any such metadata in Yes. So Cludgeon already does have a little bit of that. Um, so you can ask how much uh, time uh, it took to render the previous frame. Um, and that's the uh, time it took to from when it started the render call inside of your code to the point that the submit call on the um, on the frame buffer, or what do they call it uh, on the. Uh, yeah, on the on the frame or whatever the the window buffer, the multi buffered thing, the oh man, uh, swap chain. There we go on the swap chain submit uh, where where you sub, where you submit the new frame to the swap chain. Um, so once that call returns, that's the total measured time that Cludgeon gives you as a this is how long it took to render the previous frame. 
Um, so that, that doesn't necessarily mean the frame is fully presented. I don't know if there's a way to query that from WGPU, but at least that's the point where execution returns back to your code after telling the GPU it's submitted. And supposedly it's, I, supposedly it's roughly the same thing. I don't actually know that for sure though. Um, but that's what my research seemed to imply. So I have that, that I could expose somewhere, but obviously that doesn't exist on web. And so the question is, what does, what are the GUI metrics that are truly cross-platform uh, and then, you know, do I somehow embed platform specific information in there somehow too? I, I just haven't even gotten there. So at a minimum, I, there, there's a project called tracing that I really hope everyone who's listening is aware of, but if not, you should definitely go check out the tracing project and the ecosystem around it. It is incredibly feature rich that has all sorts of fun stuff, including the ability to instrument your code in ways that you can tie into cool reporting infrastructures such as Jaeger. And I'll link, link, link that too, but it allows you to just, uh, you know, with a remote process, observe the performance of your application as these different tracing events. And I'm putting those in air quotes um, are observed by, by that, uh, you know, monitoring software or whatever. And ultimately they're powered by essentially logs. That's, that's kind of what the, the core thing really is at the end of the day. Um, but, you know, avoiding writing those logs to disk before shipping them off is nice. And that that's all supported by the tracing thing. So my, my goal would actually be to instrument the code using the tracing crate so that we can hook in, all sorts of fun, uh, you know, open telemetry uh, supported, uh, you know, backends to be able to observe these things, even in, you know, running applications uh, potentially someday. That's not being saying that I'm going to actually ask for end users uh, um, uh, <laughs> data that I, I'm not looking for that level of, of feedback uh, for this type of thing. It's more for, for my own uh, testing when I'm trying to figure out what's actually like when we're, when we're debugging a performance, our game, being able to analyze what it's, what's spending time while you're running. Usually you don't want to like, get just a snapshot, you'd rather be able to run it for a while and then analyze all the results that were gathered over that time, which is essentially what profiling does. But when you have things like async code, that can be really hard to understand the structure of it. And that's where the the tracing instrumentation can really go above and beyond because it builds that that hierarchy as part of the the event structure. So I don't know if you've played around much with tracing. I have played around with tracing uh, not at all. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I, I know someone in my community who's done that, and I think he even wrote a Jaeger clone in Rust, yes. by the yep. way. Uh, yeah, okay, well, there you, you know. Um, so yeah, telemetry is such a dirty word these days, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, when you talk about it, there was uh, the, the, out, the outrage about telemetry uh, the conversation in the in the Go compiler. I know that the uh, uh, some .NET stuff for Arch Linux um, comes with telemetry enabled. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's uh, uh, so. So to take this very very lightly. If you go onto the Arch wiki and you search for .NET, you can find a section on telemetry, and it tells you how to turn it off. So some parts of this is enabled by default. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and telemetry is one of those things. You know, in a, we're, we live in a privacy-aware time. People, well, people like <laughs> you and people. I, at least. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> some people, right? They, they, they care, right? They, they don't want, they, we don't want our data, you know, scattered across the interwebs. And even though, even though the claims to anonymize the data is there, there's, there's always going to be that, like the cynicism in the background. Like you, you think, yeah, yeah, whatever, right? It was Kenneth the intern who anonymized it by removing like your mother's maiden name from the query or whatever it was, right? Like, <laughs> I, I don't know, right? And um, I don't, I don't believe that. I, I think that. I think that there's so much uh, personal information submitted that doesn't look like personal information, but someone who's clever can cobble together a lot or, and, and, and deduce a lot from these so-called anonymous information. Right? But um, before I get the tinfoil out to make a fashionable hat, I think it's, it would probably best move on from that topic. <laughs> um, so, okay, let's, let's, talk, let's talk database, right? Let's talk a little bit about that. How's, how's that going? Um, Slowly. And, um, and what have you been I, up to I, I, So after uh, 
we skipped last week's recording because I was not feeling uh, particularly great at the time. Um, and by the time that I was ready to write code again, uh, I, I I realized that my language was going to require a lot more work than I really wanted to put in the next week or two. Um, so <laughs> I, uh, I I I made the conscious effort to switch back to bonsai finally. Um, and, and and maybe there's a separate topic to to talk about of. Uh, I feel, I feel bad when I work on things that aren't bonsai sometimes because like I know that there is a community. Uh, it's not a huge community, but there's a community of people that use bonsai and are looking forward to the next release. And, you know, uh, sometimes I just want to work on other things and, you know, and I think it's mixed with the fact that I've got a GitHub sponsors set up and, you know, I, I'm not making very much from it, but I like just even the fact that anyone sponsored me at all, like I feel like it's most likely because of bonsai and I'm sitting here working on other things, you know, like, so anyways, I got back to bonsai finally this past week and, um, I fixed the last issue that was uh, holding up a release, um, which was the uh, when accessing Bonsai from uh, a WASM uh, client, uh, the the new code that I wrote to handle timeouts so that you can have per request timeouts and stuff like that um, was using a crate that apparently just wasn't actually compatible with WASM in a browser, despite from the readme looking like it was. Um, but I don't have a good setup for doing unit tests for, for WASM right now. Um, and, uh, so I wasn't actually able to see that it was causing failures in the, in, in being able to connect it all because <laughs> ultimately the library was, uh, was making a call to some syscall that wasn't supported. And that caused the WASM binary just to completely to fail to load. Um, and debugging those problems is, really fun let me let you let you know about that uh, so uh so yeah overall uh, things are going well i ended up um uh uh submitting uh, a couple of prs in uh, ecosystem to update some crates uh for a uh, cve that uh one of the dependencies in rust ls um has just an unmaintained crate essentially um and so i'm kind of waiting on those updates to land in the ecosystem before i release the next bonsai update but in theory it's actually ready knock on wood um the the only other fun war story that I had uh, during this is that uh, I, I finally bonsai has so many build artifacts because there's a bunch of different examples. There's benchmarks. There's all sorts of fun stuff that right now I think because there's a couple of duplicate uh, versions of various crates that have quite a big dependency trees. I, I actually started running out of disk space on GitHub Actions. <laughs> so, uh, so that was a fun problem to solve. I now have an actual step in uh, in my test phase uh, to remove Docker images that aren't being used and things like that to clean up extra disk space before I actually run my build commands. It's really bad. So yeah, I, I don't I don't know the long term solution to that. Um, but yeah, you're only given uh, like 14 gigs uh, guaranteed on a GitHub Actions worker um, currently. And you you often will have more, but sometimes you won't. And uh, it turns out that there's a lot of stuff you can clean off those machines that you really don't need. Because when you think about it, they support all sorts of build, type of build environments out of the box. So you don't have to install extra software. And every single one of those things you don't really need for Rust. You know, so you can just start removing a bunch of stuff. Um, so do it becomes you, a, do you use ahead. latest Rust for your CI setup then? Uh, depends on the project, but yes uh, and no. Um, so with Bonsai and many of my projects, I have at least two different versions being tested, latest, uh, stable, and the MSRV, the minimum supported Rust version. Uh, uh, not all my projects have identified one for. of those yet, but I, I do have, at least on Bonsai and a couple other of the, the crates, I have the MSRV set. So speaking of that, like, do you do you keep your system up to date? Like, do you always are you, are you there on release day and you like all right, let's do a Rust up update? Most you, of I'm the guessing time, you're using Rust up, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, I use Rust up, and and anyone who's not so should, if you, should, should really if you reconsider ban, their life choices. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> if you so. ban Rust C that dash dash version, right? Uh, what would what would it say now? It should say one seven two. I don't know. I mean, you're seeing my I'm screen, right? Uh, so let's see. Have uh, you, oh, I'm, I'm, I, uh, yeah. There you one go. seven two. Yeah. I'm no, I, 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 then, I, I most of the time update on release day. Like it's one of the fun things I look forward to. Uh, this past week, it was a couple of days late, and uh, one seventy one. I was like an entire week late on. Like I was, I just completely forgot it had happened. So uh, most of the time, I'm on release day though. 
What about you? I'm a, I think I'm a sort of an obsessive compulsive updater of, of yeah. everything. I update my my system. I have I have three main computers in the house that I'm updating. I have a laptop. I have a computer upstairs connected to the TV, and and I have the computer I'm using here for streaming and 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 the likes. And I update these computers several times a week. But every time there's like something to do that takes time, or I'm I'm thinking about a problem and. I sort of just want to swap context. I would just shell into all the computers, start updating. <laughs> so I'm always on the laser, but I don't always read the, the release notes, right? So have you looked at any of the interesting stuff that came out for 172? Is there anything in yeah, there, there? There's two. One that I don't, like I'm hopeful for. So one of them is uh, improved air messages um, for things that you might be trying to bring in from a crate that aren't currently available because you haven't activated a feature flag. So uh, so they, they've improved the air messages to hopefully identify what feature flag you might need to enable for that particular crate to enable the thing you're trying to use, which I think wow, will save so much time because like oh I, God, I will yes. hit that occasionally. And then, uh, you know, not many crates uh, document their feature flags in their readme. So you often have to go dig into the cargo Tomo file, which means going to find the repository and like it's a it's a whole chore to go figure out what feature flags are actually available for some crates. Um, so this and you should... can see them on Docs RS though, right? You can see the feature flags. If oh, they that's are. true. Well, no, 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 you can't. Not always. That requires a nightly only feature called doc config. Uh, or sorry, uh, called uh, auto config, uh, auto feature config, or something like that. Um, really? Not all crates have that turned on. You have to explicitly turn that on for it to an annotate what features you need. And uh, Bonsai DB's crate uh, is an, an om what I call an omnibus crate, where it imports a bunch of different crates. And that is not compatible with that auto annotation feature. So it, the Bonsai uh, uh, crate will bring in a bunch of other crates that have their own feature flags. And when you do the re-export in the docs RS, um, it gets confused as to what feature flags are actually needed for all the stuff that's being imported through that re-export, if that makes any sense at all. Um, so oh, there's like, okay. there, there's some complexities in trying to actually enable the, the feature flag, like let you know what features are needed for each thing um, for certain crates, um, such as Bonsai because of that, uh, that issue um, for, for simpler crates, it is just usually a matter of turning the feature on. Um, but because it's a nightly only feature, you have to like only enable it for when you're building it on docs RS and like, there's some, there's some, some fun and dance you have to do with that. So I'm hoping that that eventually gets stabilized so that we don't have to have the little song and dance with extra hidden feature flags to enable those things on when you're building docs on docs RS. Oh, Sorry okay. if that made this, no sense to people. just some yeah. magic, right? Yeah, I thought it was. It is, it is magic I'm, when it works. <laughs> but, <laughs> because I think this is like some, some, sometimes I get a lot of questions, right? And, 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 and sometimes it's like, oh, what, what, like, how do I, how do I enable this thing? And what is this thing? And I'll be like, oh, go on, if you go on DocsRS and you look up the crate and you can see the little feature flags tab yeah. at the top of the page, you click on that one, you see all the features. And this well, actually, is usually maybe, maybe that um, exists. I'm going to, I'm not going to distract myself uh, while, while we're having the podcast. It's so tempting to do that sometimes, but maybe there is a section on the DocsRS page page that you're referring to that I'm just not familiar with. Um, so there, there might be one of those things that I'm just not aware of. And if there is, you'll see it in the show notes. So <laughs> should we, should we, should we not? We just said, listen, listener, you can go and find out. <laughs> just go to DocsRS, find your favorite crate and see if it has feature flags. Um, jokes aside. So there was the, there was the errors, right? That for missing feature flags. Is there anything yeah. else? You said two things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the, a few releases back, um, the underlying implementations for the, uh, the multi-producer single consumer channels inside of the standard library were replaced to use the same internals as Crossbeam, which is a really popular crate that is known for being incredibly efficient. Um, and I don't know the specifics of how this actually works. Like I know that the Rust um, hash map is based on hash brown, but I don't know how they actually tie it all together, right? Like I don't, I don't know if they actually refer to the GitHub repository of of hash brown or how that whole process even works. So I don't know how the the internals of Crossbeam were adopted for the MPSC channels, but I know that they were. Um, and one of the cool things about the crossbeam channels is that their senders and receivers are both uh, sync, which means that, for example, you could have a shared MPSC sender um, inside of an arc, as opposed to having to clone the sender to everywhere that you want to send it to. 
um, or send from, I guess. Um, and now, so despite the internals being replaced, sync wasn't actually implemented for MPSC sender in the standard library. Um, in Rust 172, that has now been changed. So now that pattern is now supported. So, so if you if you wanted to, you could have something like a static arc with a shutdown sender, uh, where you can just send that. So, so anything could could trigger a shutdown, or however you want to like model the, these things. Like the the point being, you can now have a static arc of a sender, right? Well, I mean, you can do all to, sorts of things. Uh, more specifically, you can just have an arc with a sender that you can clone and send around. Um, which doesn't necessarily sound that interesting because you can just clone a sender. So why wouldn't you just clone the sender, right? And the the reason is that you might want to put the sender inside of a data structure that actually is contained inside of an arc. And now you're sending that thing around as opposed to just sending the the, the channel itself around. So it just it just adds a lot more flexibility by not making it so that everything you put a sender inside of is no longer sync. It just, it's just going to be so much nicer to have. Uh, that's one of the only reasons, it's one of the few reasons that I'll reach for other channel libraries right now, because I know that the standard library channels are really good now. Um, and they were already pretty good before that. And it's the same with, um, with uh, the, um, oh, I forgot what the example I was going to say. There was another thing that, uh, Rust recently optimized, oh, the mutexes and RW locks. Uh, those implementations are significantly faster than they used to be, um, such that they actually rival parking lots. So uh, while a couple years ago, I was uh, very often one of the first things I'd bring in as parking lot just to use their mutexes and RW locks. Nowadays, I try to use the standard libraries by default and only switch if I need one of the more powerful features like upgradable reads or something like that that parking lot supports. Oh, really? Because I've been using Parking Lot lately a lot during my experimentation in, in, um, in, in the, with the runtime stuff to see uh, what I can do. I, um, I mentioned this earlier before we started recording as well, that I, I ditched the multi-threading for my runtime. And instead, I went with a single-threaded runtime. But the, when I say runtime, this only deals with layout positioning and painting and 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 that's it right so really what i'm calling a runtime here is just that right so we're kind of uh, um yeah um we're kind of uh, uh we're sort of just running everything on on one thread so you have like a ui thread and it's just doing that and then i opted to have a way of communicating values into the state through channels instead right mm-hmm. and of course um you mentioned you mentioned the it's a parking lot. So yeah, I've been I've been I've been tinkering with that one quite a bit. Um, the, the the significance there for me is is when I choose between parking lot and a standard library, it's more about whether I want to deal with the possibility of a poison mutex or not, right? Because you yeah. don't have to. Um, I will say that it's a little to annoying to do the map or else everywhere when you don't want to deal yeah. with poisoning. Um, and so uh, just real quickly, because uh, people may not know what poisoning is, um, poisoning is a concept that uh, when you hold a lock on something, um, you may be in the middle of updating its state such that th- it's, in an, it's in an inconsistent state. So think about if you're updating both the first and last name of a user inside of a mutex for some reason, and you update the first name, but then you notice something and – or no, you don't notice something. You panic before you set the last name. That's you the important freak part. out. Um, and and at that point, when someone else goes and acquires the lock, they they need to know potentially not in all applications, but in some applications, it is very important to know whether or not the data contained by the mutex is in a potentially inconsistent state, aka another thread poisoned while it was being written to. Um, and so that's what poisoning is. Um, and and parking lot uh, avoids it by just not having that concept. So you don't have all these result types everywhere with potentially poison errors, um, which you do when you use the standard library. And thankfully, the standard library offers a uh, into enter on poison error that makes it really straightforward to just ignore the poison errors. Um, but it is a lot more verbose than just bringing in parking lot and, and not having to deal with it at all. Yeah, it it is. I've I've used a very similar example to to talk about this, and I said if you have a if you're making a change to your username and password, and you update your username but not your password, that has quite a catastrophic oh, yeah. consequences, right? Uh, but then again, if you have something like a mutex and you are doing maybe one or more 
um, data queries. I don't know why you would the database queries, but I don't know what you would, but whatever people do, right? And you are updating uh, and reading and then you panic. With with the poison error happening, you have some way of at least dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the park with parking lot you, you don't really. But um I think it's a nice trade off though. I like parking lot. I think it's nice. Uh, but but I did swap to to be single threaded for the, for just for the graphical stuff, right? I mm-hmm. say graphical, but it's a thing of term and it's text, right? Um but but what I do, what I did decide to do, and and we come back to this now and then. Uh, we talked about the standard libraries um, channels. The MPSC in standard library is now pretty fast, pretty good. But one thing, it's not. It it doesn't mix async. And we talked about Flume before, right? Yeah. But it doesn't mix async and sync, which I still think um, is incredibly powerful. Absolutely. So you can have so you can have something like an async runtime driving your network traffic and you can have a flume channel to communicate back into the runtime. So if you want to update your state with some input, you can simply just communicate by sending that um and into your um in, into your into your state and mm-hmm. include that in whatever collection or have you do. Right? So I think I think flume channels are very, very good. Yeah. Um, absolutely. There. But uh, this is a this is a lot of programming talk on a podcast about programming. Have you been doing anything that isn't programming? I have. Um, I've been playing a little bit of games. Um, I uh, explored Baldur's Gate a little bit, which is a pretty interesting game. But unfortunately, I don't think it's quite my style of game. The story is really interesting to me, but I don't really. I'm not really loving the combat systems in it. It's just a little. I don't know. I it's partly because I I think I'm just not very familiar with the whole Dungeons and Dragons system in general that there's just so much to learn that I feel like it's almost a chore anytime the combat starts. But I really like the story. So, uh, I uh I also just could constantly read and one of the things that we had um uh talked about on a previous episode just very briefly uh was uh oh, I forgot what uh what the what the joke name was already, but uh, <laughs> George Carmack, <laughs> yeah, George Carmack. There we go. Uh, no, uh, John John Romero released a, a new book uh, called Doom Guy, um, and he actually uh, narrates it himself on uh, on the audiobook version, which is kind of nice. Um, uh, and uh, it, it it's kind of an a retelling of the Masters of Doom book, which is the one that we we mentioned on a previous episode. Uh, so that was the only reason why I wanted to bring it up because we had previously talked about it very briefly. Um, and really, uh, it tells mostly the same stories uh, with just a slightly different perspective. Um, he walks back quite a bit of the drama and he kind of chalks it up. Uh, sorry, he walks back some of the drama that is talked about in Masters of Doom. Um, and he, he chalks it up more to it being compelling plot points as opposed to like... Um, you know, full fabrications. Like there, the, certainly feelings are hard to to, to document, right? Um, but the the way he talks about it is that like there was a lot more just logical feeling about a lot of different things that happened. Um, that yeah, they still suck and hurt when they happen, right? But at the same time, they kind of just they both like both he uh, John Romero and and and, and Carmack both uh, you know kind of agreed at various points of some of these things that. I remember from Masters of Doom being supposedly like, you know, complete fallout, like, you know, friend friend eliminating type fallout. But it turns out that, you know, yeah, while they were kind of annoyed at each other for a while, they, they still remained friends and still kept in touch with each other. And I mean, heck, they even licensed, uh, you know, he, uh, you know, Romero even licensed uh, some of their tech in future games and stuff. So, you know, it's a, it was an interesting read. Um, and if, if you enjoyed Masters of Doom, um, I would recommend uh, going back through it. Uh, the other interesting aspect that I kind of wanted to bring up is um, he um, self-identifies as someone who has hyperthymesia. Have you heard of hyperthymesia or what it is? I, I don't know why. Why did I even ask? Because th- th- this is the sort of thing I need to get better at when I'm doing a podcast. Because like, it doesn't matter if you know <laughs> at the end of the day, if, if there's possibly a listener out there that doesn't know what it is, we need to answer the question anyway. So, uh, so hyperthymesia. Well, I is- know. That's the end of the conversation. <laughs> Thanks <Exactly>. for listening. <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> Hyperthymesia is uh, is is more colloquially identified as total recall. Um, it's not exactly what it is, but it's uh, the the idea that uh, certain people are able to re- recall um, experiences and memories 
in incredible detail, like uh, just like almost like reliving it type feeling. Um, and he says that he uh, he experiences that. Um, and I, I have no way to refute it or anything like that. But uh, the Wikipedia page, when I looked at it, like said something like there's only like 62 known cases in the world or whatever. So it is an incredibly rare thing. But um, that, uh, you know, uh, whether or not he does or not. It's certainly he certainly has a very good memory of a lot of these uh, events that um, you know I think added a different light from from Masters of Doom, but it's also been such a long time since I read Masters of Doom that I I, it's, I don't really remember how different it really is. So, anyways, that's that's the that's the book that I finished recently. Do you, do you read very yeah. much? Um, I can read, but I don't know <laughs> if I do if I exercise that a lot. Compiler error messages. Though, like, <laughs> I well, I mean, I don't read. I don't read error messages. I I read about twenty percent. I'm gonna admit, I read about twenty percent of my error messages, or I read them if I, I make a mistake. I don't even look at the error messages. I look at the code. I know. And I'm like, yeah, I do that too. Like, I, I try to guess what the <laughs> compiler is actually telling me is the problem instead of just reading the error message. It's I'm, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I was going to say, imagine if when you ran compile, you just get the word error. But if or you just ran, ran squigglies, you get the full <laughs> message because you couldn't figure it out, right? I just get red squigglies. They're like, what do, you, what do you not like here? Oh, okay, that, you know, and like just, I don't know, it's kind of fun. Uh, I, you know, you know, I get, I get this a lot. But before, before we get to the red squigglies, uh, I, uh, I, I, rem- I don't remember Masters of Doom, right? Um, not much of it. I remember reading it. I remember enjoying it. And I do remember that it kind of painted Romero in a bit of a bad light, didn't it? Um, At times. And, and I, yeah. So it, 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 it certainly did. So I'm interested to, to see what this thing has to, so I, I, I think at sort of at the end of Masters of Doom, uh, it kind of, uh, I, think, I think it was towards the end, right? Where they talk about how he like got this massive office space and all yes. these things, right? Um, and, and then, and it's sort of, it's one of those stories that in hindsight, it's like, yeah, all right, you probably shouldn't have done that. But isn't that the case of everything? I mean, like, I can imagine that there's a lot of successful startups that just goes nuts on lavish stuff and you know, spend a lot of money and maybe yeah. they succeed and no one's even going to question that, right? So, you know, they spend so, nine million pounds yeah. in the jelly bean machine. I mean, solid <laughs> goal. I don't know, right? I mean, but whatever they do, right? So I think... If they would have, if, if he would have led a masterful success uh, of the whole thing, I think no one would have even commented on that, right? I, I think it's it's interesting because essentially what happened from his perspective in this telling of the book, and, and this is paraphrased, so obviously if you want to hear what he actually said, you should go read the book. Um, but uh, Eidos was, or Eidos uh, was, was like, looking to like really up their game as a as a being known as a as a big publisher and they felt like they needed to have a headquarter office and that happened to be at the time that idos uh like backed publishing um uh oh i forgot what his company's name was um but uh his 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 new company after he left um left it um and so a lot of that spend apparently came just with IDOS's complete blanket approval because they wanted a premier like, you know, office space that they could call their headquarters. Um, so some of it wasn't fully on him, but yeah, obviously they spent a bunch of money doing stuff, right? Like, uh, and, uh, you know, another thing, uh, this, one of the specifics was, uh, one of the ad campaigns that he felt like really backfired. He, he remembers not wanting to ever do it. And like, he basically just like finally acquiesced to his marketing director guy, which obviously he's, he was in charge of hiring the market marketing guy. Right. So like, it still is his choice at the end of the day that the ad campaign went out that really annoyed people. Like, uh, I can't remember. It was like, uh, it, it literally had, a, a, a you know, a, uh, another name for a donkey, uh, that, that curse word in the, uh, in the thing, uh, in the ad, um, and, you know, it, it was, a, a it was, uh, no, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> You're trying to make you me get an explicit, ex- explicit true on iTunes. 
No. Uh, yes, they were all thinking it. Go on, sorry. <laughs> Honestly, I don't remember where else I was going with that. It was more just the idea that <laughs> there's there's more nuance to the story than you ever think about, right? And I, I can remember being in a position of running a company where I totally just said, yeah, okay, let's give it a try, knowing that it may not work, right? And back in the, the, the 90s, if you think about some of those ad campaigns a lot of companies were doing, they were doing very edgy ad campaigns, you know? Sega was trying to differentiate themselves from Nintendo back in those days by trying to 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 be like you know the more like edgy <laughs> image I guess you know um, which and, which one of them was it was it Sega does what Nintendo don't was yes, that a thing? that's yes that's the one yeah I couldn't remember the slogan oh, there's man, many of them yeah. but that was one of them yeah. you know um, so yeah it was kind of just a different era you know and and he was trusting his marketing guy for some of it and you know there was also a little bit of it sounds like he didn't necessarily want some of the things that his other business partner wanted sort of thing and you know it at the end of the day he recognizes it as you know things could have definitely gone better um you know and uh his his biggest gripe for about himself was that he wasn't he he would often just let things fester as opposed to dealing with the problems so you know him getting fired from id was uh, was uh kind of at the uh, there were signs that Carmack wasn't happy leading up to it, but instead of acting on those and trying to fix them and have conversations to like point out what all he's been working on and why he thinks that those are important compared to what Carmack wanted him to work on, you know, he just would ignore it basically instead. And when you ignore problems, they usually pile up and become a big problem, right? So, like that's what he chalks up a lot of that too is just his kind of uh, immaturity in that regard of how to how to deal with problems. You know what would be nice? It would be nice to know if any of our listener is listening to this while not ignoring one of the problems and dealing with them. Maybe you're <laughs> doing the dishes. Maybe you're washing the floor. Whatever you're doing, well done. Keep it up. We're exactly. proud of you. I think that's all the time that we have for today. So I would yeah. like to thank you all for listening, and I hope you tune in for our next one. That was good. Thanks, everyone. Bye.